Hello and welcome back. My name is Graham Brown. This is the Storytelling Organization, which is really all about how you as a team, as an organization, as a brand, as a corporate leader can tell better stories. Because as we will learn today, and I'll be your guide for this journey into the world of stories, stories are probably the most important skill for any corporate leader because they have significant impact on business outcomes. So what are those outcomes? How does storytelling impact outcomes? And how do you use it? How do you get better at it? How do you become a better storyteller? You know, you don't have to be Steve Jobs to be an amazing storyteller. You just need to know how it works. And what I want to do today on the storytelling organization is talk about why it works. There's a lot of mystery about storytelling. We know storytelling as once upon a time, like your younger years, or if you've got kids, you'll remember those stories you were told by mom and dad, or the stories told to you by teachers and you know, gather around kids. They had a magical effect. They took us on magic carpet rides, literally. They made us imagine, make believe. And when we grow up, we tend to think that stories are child's play somehow, and therefore they don't belong in the world of corporate. So what I want to do today is just look at how you can use stories very effectively and what kind of outcomes you can expect from it. Now, one of the things I do is working in podcasts. I also coach people, train people in podcasting and storytelling. Some time ago, I was working with a group of startup founders. And as you can imagine, being a startup founder, you're not only chief sales guy, chief developer, chief designer, chief throwing out the rubbish at night person, also the chief storyteller. You are the person who is out there on stage pitching, hiring, selling, which is all a part of storytelling. This time I was coaching, training in a masterclass, a group of startup founders. And after the session, one of the startup founders pulled me aside and he said, Graham, I don't want to tell a story. I want to tell the truth. And I said to this chap, let's call him Alvin. Alvin, if you don't tell a story, I won't know what your truth is. And the reason why I'm sharing that with you is because a lot of people out there have this idea that stories are somehow a conflation or a fabrication of the truth. And that is a natural way of thinking because when we were kids, we used to get scolded by parents and teachers for saying, don't go tell stories, little Graham, as if somehow that was lying. And yet the reality is storytelling is reality. So let me explain. In marketing, we have two concepts, and these will help you understand what storytelling is. You have the content which you share with people. That could be what you talk about. That could be your data. And you have the context which wraps that content up in a package. And people don't buy content. They buy context. They don't buy stuff. They buy what stuff does for them. Now, I'll give you an example. When you are a startup founder like Alvin and you are raising funds, the data 
is the spreadsheet. That's the content. This is what we're about. But investors don't invest in spreadsheets. They invest in you. They invest in the story, which is your journey, your pitch to the promised land. And yet it's the same content, but packaged in different ways. And that is storytelling. Storytelling is like laying a brick. If you're a bricklayer, you can choose to lay one brick, you can choose to build a wall, or you can build the Sistine Chapel. It's the same brick, same action, but completely different outcomes. And the outcomes are shaped by the stories that you tell. So one thing I do is I work with storytellers, corporate leaders, and help them tell better stories. These could be MBB consultancies, private banks, financial services, fintech government agencies, SaaS platforms, airlines even. I help them and their business leaders tell better stories. And I also help them get on other people's podcasts, get on stages where they can share the conversations that matter with people who care on a global audience, on a global stage. That could be your sales message, your pricing strategy. It could be recruitment. It could be fundraising. It's all storytelling. So when you look, for example, at your business and you see your sales, your profit and loss statement, these are lagging indicators. These are downstream metrics. So what lies upstream? Downstream at the mouth of the river, going into the ocean, those are your results. But upstream, if you want to get to the source, if you want to change the direction of the river, you have to influence the direction of the river. And that is storytelling. And storytelling is the big force multiplier in business. And the Alvins of this world believe, because they've been prepped and influenced by media, that we make decisions with data. But the reality is that people buy on emotion and justify with logic. They'll happily tell you why they did something, but not talk about the emotion. The real reason why they did that, the real reason I bought this iPhone wasn't necessarily because of all the features. Sure, when you ask me, that's what I'm going to say. But the reality is, it was the emotion. It was the deep down story that connected with my core. It was about personal identity. It was about status. It was about significance. Nobody in their right mind is going to stand up and say, yeah, I bought this iPhone because I wanted to look good. They'll get laughed at. So they have to justify it post, post purchase with a logical reason. It's like, I remember when mobile phones first came out, I was working in the industry. My mom at the time said, I want to get a mobile phone because what if I break down in the car? Now that was very typical in the late nineties. What if I break down in the car? I'm a woman on my own. Yeah, it's a very logical, sound reason why I need a phone. But she never broke down in the car. And what did she use the phone for? Like everybody else, chatting with friends. Stories, data, emotion, logic. 
People think that we need data to make decisions. But look at the reality we have today. Climate change is an example. If you Google climate change, you'll find 1.1 billion page results. There's a lot of data out there about climate change. We know we have all the data in the world, if not more, more, many, many lifetimes of data about climate change. We've known climate change is not new. In 1892, so that's 130 years ago, 130 years ago, the first scientific paper was published by a Swedish researcher called Svente Arias. He published a paper about coal and global warming in 1892, guys. We've known about it for 130 years. But it was only when a young Swedish teenager, Greta Thunberg, went before the world's leaders and told the story of you, your generation has robbed us. Your generation has let us down. Did people start thinking seriously about change? You see, if you want to create change, you don't need better data. You need better stories. So let's understand a little bit about the psychology of storytelling. How does a story influence your brain? Well, there are two ways that I want to talk about and share with you today on this podcast. One is the psychological phenomena of framing, framing. And the second is the psychological need to connect. So let's talk about the first one, framing, maps. You think about a map, maps. I love maps. You've seen a map. You've had a map on your wall at some point, whether it's in your school classroom, in your office or at home, you know what a map looks like. And if I asked you to draw a map, you'd probably draw what is known as the Mercator projection. Now the Mercator projection is a projection. It's a visualization, a rendition or interpretation of the world because the world is not flat. The world is a slightly squashed 3D sphere. Now, that means if you want to turn a, a ball into a poster that sits on your wall, you have to interpret it, right? You have to change the layout in some way. And that's what we do. If you look at the Makata projection as an example, look at Greenland at the top and then Africa. Greenland is huge. In fact, if you look at the size comparisons, Greenland is bigger on the Mercator projection than Africa, but actually Africa is 15 times bigger in landmass in reality than Greenland. Greenland is tiny compared to Africa. That's a bit strange. That's not just like a small percentage, 15 times. Greenland is 2 million square kilometers and Africa is 30 million square kilometers. So that's a huge misrepresentation. Something's going on. And I'll tell you what that something is. Go back to any different projection in the world and you will see that it's an interpretation of fact because you cannot see clearly the world in its 3D form. So we have to interpret it so you can understand it. And that is what's called a worldview. And the most dominant worldview in 
our society is the Mercator projection, which puts the Americas on the left, Europe in the middle, all bordering the Atlantic Ocean, and then Asia kind of pushed out to the side. And if you're if you're a Kiwi, you're not even on the map sometimes. That's a political representation of the world. Not only are the sizes very different, it very much favors the Northern Hemisphere, but it also puts the old colonial powers straight bang in the middle of the world. And that's not done coincidentally. If you look, for example, at a map centered on Tokyo, which I have seen because I've lived in Japan and the first time I ever saw a non-Makeda projection map was a Japan-centric map. And it's very strange. Firstly, you'll see my home, like Europe and then America, pushed right out, squashed into the corner of the map as almost as if it's like a province or some backwater. And then the size of the Pacific Ocean is huge. It takes up half of the map. And for a reason, because if we believe that London and the old colonial powers are not only the center of the world, but top of the world and bigger than everybody else, then it kind of justifies all the political realities that follow suit that potentially there is a reason why these companies are dominant and should be colonizing other countries in the bottom because they're small and insignificant and on the edges. That's a worldview. And that shapes not just how we look at the world, but all foreign policy, identity, and relations that have really formed since we've started trading with other countries. Now, a very common interpretation of the map is simply to put the old colonial powers on the top. Now, you might think, well, that's obvious, isn't it? Because you know, Europe and America, they're on top of the world, aren't they? You know, well, actually, that's not the case because there is no up and down in space, right? If you think about it, ask your physics teacher or any, you know, GCSE or high school physics student will tell you there is no up and down in space. They go, hang on a minute. So is that the case always? There is actually a south up map, which completely flips the world on its head. So where we would traditionally see Europe, there would be upside down Africa, and then you've got Australia, and they look much, much bigger. And then you've got sort of Europe sort of at the bottom and very small and tiny. And you will say, well, you know, that's upside down. Well, we've dealt with that. And then you may say, well, you know, well, north is up. No, it's not. And then you say, well, actually, the compass points north. Again, that's a story that we've been told for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. A compass doesn't point north. A compass points north and south. It's just at some point in history, some smart guy decided to paint the red dot on the tip of the north part of the compass. All of this has shaped history, politics, relations, Every, all the problems that we have in the world and the good things as well have come out of our interpretation via maps. And if we change the map, we change how we see the world. Now, obviously, people will argue against that. And like the Alvins of this world who believe in data, we'll see the world through what psychologists call naive realism bias. And that is, we believe we see the world as it is. But the reality is, 
that we live in a very constructed world. And that is, even if you look through your vision, your brain is actively interpreting and constructing the reality around you. You're not actually seeing what you're really seeing. Your brain is making interpretations of that. There is a lot of ambiguity out there in the world. And that's why we need stories, because what stories do, and this is the second part of the psychology of storytelling, is the power of stories is that they are able to remove ambiguity. Now, there's one thing that human beings don't like, and that is the unknown. If you were to look at any Hollywood movie, the bad guy is always formless. You know, if you think about the Joker or Sauron in Lord of the Rings or that one from Harry Potter, they're often formless, they're non-human, and they generally have a deformed figure or face. There's a reason for that. It's because if it was a human being in a human form, we would be able to identify and understand it. But if it was formless or slightly different or disfigured, then it triggers that natural fear that we have in our psyche of things that we don't understand. Because if it doesn't look like a human, it won't behave like a human. It won't have the same capacity that a human has. Even if you look at some of the movies like Star Wars, you have the emperor who is the deformed figure. And then you have Darth Vader who has inside him somewhere deep, as we discovered on the journey, a human heart, i.e. that at some point you could appeal to his humanity. And in that famous scene when Darth Vader saves Luke but was killed by the Emperor, we see that even the bad guy who was once a human could recover himself and become human again. But as for the guy who's all disfigured and monstrous, now we don't know about that guy. We don't like him because he's not a guy at all. He's just some alien. And human beings have not liked that for many, many years. If you look all the way back to the cave paintings in Lascaux, 28,000 BC, so 30,000 years ago when mankind was making art on the walls of caves, we were telling stories about humans and animals and putting it all together so we could make sense of it. Because if you were part of a Paleolithic or um, prehistoric, Stone Age tribe 30,000 years ago, your biggest problem was going to be being eaten by an animal, disease, the weather, all those kind of things, starvation, the unknown, not having access to information about where the food was, not knowing if this berry would kill you at all, not knowing why all of a sudden it was flooding and you couldn't occupy your caves and would have to evacuate to higher ground. All of those things were the unknown. We didn't know it. So humankind started telling stories about all of that, like giving stories and giving meaning to the rocks and the rivers and the floods and the trees around us and the animals and putting it into context, telling stories, whether it was religion or spirituality or the definition of the stories of that tribe. See, the human brain, as magical as it is, cannot distinguish between past, present, and future. To us, it seems natural. To us, we understand that tomorrow I'm going to 
get up in the morning and go to work as I normally do, and I'll come home and have dinner with my family. We have these concepts, but the human brain at the level of experience, the neuropsychological, the biological, chemical experience level does not know the difference. All the human brain has is experience. So when you envisage what's going to happen tomorrow to the brain, it's experiencing like it's happening now. And if you then tell about what happened in the past, naturally you may feel upset if you remember something that was traumatic in your past. It's almost as if you're experiencing it again. But obviously over time, the intensity of the experience may diminish as you are somehow habituated to that experience. But that's the reality of the human brain. So when the human brain sees or experiences or hears something that is unfamiliar, its natural reaction is to avoid it. We don't like the unknown. So when you're on stage as a startup founder and you are telling the story of your startup, what you're really doing is trying to connect the unfamiliar and the unknown outcome of investing in that startup to a familiar and known experience. Because as much as the brain is magical, you can hack it. Meaning that if I want you to invest in my company, you're essentially putting your money into an unknown outcome. You're not investing in Coca-Cola or IBM, which you know are going to produce a guaranteed return, maybe 7%, 8% return on investment year on year. But in my startup, it could be 10,000% or it could be nothing. You just don't know. You don't know me. You don't know my company. You don't know this industry. It's a bet. So how do you de-risk that bet? Well, what you do is when you stand up and show the data about your company and the spreadsheets, you don't just give them the fact. You connect that outcome, which is unknown, with a familiar story, with the familiar past. So when Steve Jobs stood on stage and he held up his iPod, the first time he showed the iPod to the Apple team, he didn't stand up and present the data. He didn't say to everybody, this is the best MP3 player in the world. Because nobody knew what an MP3 player was and what the best one should look or sound like. So what Steve Jobs did was stood up in front of everybody and he connected an unknown outcome, which was buying the iPod, to a familiar past experience. Steve Jobs' pitch to the audience was, this is a tool for the heart. And his choice of words were deliberate. Because what Steve Jobs knew was that people had no experience of an MP3 player, very little at the time. But what they did know and could connect with was the heart. They could connect with their favorite song. You know, that song from their childhood, that song that reminded them of that girl, or that song that reminded them of their summer holiday. These are good, bittersweet, happy, sad experiences. We feel them. When you hear a song, you immediately feel an emotion. And Steve Jobs connected the unfamiliar outcome of the iPod and buying it to the familiar experience of music, emotion, 
and connection. And that's what good storytellers do. If you think about what storytelling is, it isn't the fabrication or the conflation of truth, but it is the telling of truth. Because we interpret the world through the lens, through the frame of the story which you give us. Until that point, it's all data. It's all ambiguous. A great storyteller knows that. He or she knows how to take that data and package it into something that's meaningful to you, something that talks to your inner core and your emotion. As the author and civil rights activist Maya Angelou once wrote, people will forget what you told them, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And that is the power of story. You remember the stories from many years ago, and I can relate to you childhood nursery rhymes, fables, fairy tales that were told to me from 45 plus years ago. I can remember them like that. I'm not actively remembering. I can remember songs, lyrics of songs. I heard a song the other day, which I hadn't heard for 30 years, but as soon as I heard it, I remembered every single lyric. Where was that stored? The reason I remembered it is because of the emotion attached to it. And that is the emotion you need to tap into as a corporate leader, whether it's standing on stage, raising funds for your startup, hiring people to join you on that journey that is your business and your startup, selling to a client who doesn't know what the outcome of your business will be. Any of that is storytelling. So I give it to you now that that's what the storytelling organization is about. It's not hiring a branding agency to fabricate that story for you, but to go back to your old, your existing, your own people and give them the tools to tell that story in an authentic way. So you've been listening to the storytelling organization, which is a journey into the heart of what it means to empower your people to tell stories in an authentic way and to unlock that human potential within your brand, your team, or your startup. My name's Graham Brown. Hopefully you've enjoyed this journey with me. We're only getting started. If you like this podcast, if you like this episode, then please check out the other podcasts as well. Check out the episodes. Love to hear what you hear, what you feel, what you think about the content in this podcast. You know where to find me, Graham Brown on LinkedIn.